You may open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 17. I'm thankful to be a member of a church like this that has already had so much of the Word of God and His worship accomplished before we even get to this part of it. We recently studied Simon the Pharisee a couple of Sundays ago where Jesus perfectly read his self-righteous thoughts at that dinner and confronted him about them. We recently studied Job 28, where understanding is defined as departing from evil. I have preached on the heart before. In 2002, there was a series, A Pure Heart. 2004, a sermon, Heart Examination. A series in 2004, The Heart of David. In 2007, Hot Heads, Loose Lips, and Bad Hearts. In 2007, Lip Service. In 2008, Delusions of Deceived Christians. In 2010, Is Your Heart Perfect? In 2010, Vain Thoughts. And Keeping the Heart last year. This subject could be extended to be more exhaustive, but I am not going to do that. I have underprepared intentionally in hope that it will be more profitable for you. You read last evening from 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7 that the Lord looks on the outward appearance, the inward appearance while men look on the outward. As Jesse's eight sons filed past Samuel, Samuel thought when he saw the firstborn, Eliab, surely this is the Lord's man. Look at what a man he is. And the Lord had to tell Samuel, you're looking on the outward appearance of a man, but I look on the inward parts. And that is what we all must humble ourselves to this morning. We get dressed up, we come in here, we act like Christians, And you know, we read and sing and we pray and we bow our heads and we act sober and calm and reverent and those things. And you know, our hearts can be full of wild and evil imaginations and wickedness. And we need to examine ourselves this day in light of our hearts because that's what the Lord's looking at. In Jeremiah chapter 17, there is a verse that's already been quoted once, but many of us have memorized this and learned it as a child. And I want to get the 10th verse along with it. Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is deceitful above all things. Your heart lies to you more than anyone else does. The heart is deceitful. That is to believe a lie and think it's the truth. And your heart convinces you of things that are not true. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can truly figure out how bad their hearts are? And so we have this today to think about our hearts. And verse 10, I, the Lord, and that's in all caps, indicating the Hebrew tetragrammaton, meaning Jehovah, I am that I am. I, the Lord, I, Jehovah, search the heart. I try the reins, the decision-making apparatus of your internal parts. I test them and try them even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. 
Now those are two plain verses that tell us our hearts are very bad, but God looks at our hearts to measure how much we are serving Him inside there. I have three points of introduction before I get to some examples, and this is not going to be exhaustive. I do not want you confused or distracted by me burying you with 40 or 400 sins of the heart. So there may only be 10 or so, or 15, however many I use from my prepared notes. Three points of introduction. First, the importance of the heart in our religion is what I'm addressing right here in Jeremiah 17. God says He looks at our hearts. We can look pretty good to others rather easily. But God looks at our hearts. And so today we want to examine our hearts. Look at James chapter 1 so that we can be reminded where sin starts. It starts in our hearts. Did you appreciate coming into the house of the Lord and the last couple minutes being told that you are a desperado? Because your heart is desperately wicked. Every one of our hearts. And deceitful above all things. They lie to us. Our hearts lie to us. Your heart lies to you over and over, and it is desperately wicked, and we want to examine it in the mirror of God's Word and see the faults and flaws and sins that we have in our hearts so that we might turn from them. James chapter 1, beginning at verse 13, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. Now, we believe in the sovereignty of God, but we certainly don't believe that God makes men sin. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Don't make an error about this point. All the sin comes from ourselves and it starts in our hearts. Our wicked hearts get an idea and we play with that idea. We let that idea conceive an, a, a way in which we are going to sin, in which we can sin, and we go ahead and follow that, starting with the heart, conceiving a lust. I want that. I'm going to do that. We figure out how we can do it, then we do it, and it brings forth death, and that is the order. And Adam dies, we die. Sin. Sin. We want to hate sin. And we want to hate it where it starts. In our hearts. Look at Proverbs chapter 4. A favorite verse of some in the church. And a short, powerful statement about this subject. Proverbs chapter 4 and the 23rd verse. Keep thy heart with all diligence. Diligence is strenuous effort. All diligence is everything you can put forth toward this project. Keep your heart. Keep it. Keep it from sin. Keep it from thinking about sin. Keep your heart with all diligence. For out of it are the issues of life. Your life. The things you accomplish. The sins you commit. 
flow from your heart. So you want to keep your heart. The way that you perform as a spouse, the way you work on the job, the kind of Christian you are, the way you love your neighbor, all those things flow from the heart. So we must keep our hearts. And so we have the Word of God telling us that. Keep thy heart. That's an individual person being addressed due to that singular pronoun thy. thy. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Look at chapter 24 of this same book. Solomon had much to say about the heart. Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 9. The thought of foolishness is sin. And the scorner is an abomination to men. We need the first half of the verse. The thought of foolishness is sin. If you even think about doing something foolish, you've already sinned. You don't have to do the foolishness. You don't have to be known or seen as a fool because you've thought about it inside. The thought of foolishness is sin. This is the Word of God to us. This is how serious sin is. This is how serious foolishness is in the sight of God. We cannot even allow it in our thoughts. And so we have the importance of the heart. Let's look at the nature of New Testament religion. John chapter 4. As the Jesus speaks to the woman of Samaria at the well of Jacob. John chapter 4. Beginning at verse 20. The woman is speaking. She's a Samaritan. They worshipped in Mount Gerizim, 30 miles from Jerusalem, trying to ape the Jews' religion in order to give you a little historical background for what she and Jesus said to each other. John 4.20 Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, she said, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, Believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. And that spirit there is a small s, and it should be a small s, because it is not the Holy Spirit, it is our spirit. It is our internal form of worship and religion of the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you went to a place and you did stuff outwardly. You brought animal sacrifices and there were trumpets blown. And you waited for the new moons and the priests had robes on them. There was incense and candelabras and the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle and all that stuff. Not in the New Testament. The New Testament is a religion of the heart. The New Testament is a religion of your internal spirit. So there's no place. We don't go to Mecca like the Muslims. We don't go to Jerusalem like those confused about what the Holy Land is. We don't do that. We don't go to Mount Gerizim where the Samaritans worshipped. We worship internally. We worship in spirit and in truth. And so the Lord corrects that woman. Look at Mark chapter 7. And you read some of that last evening. I hope you read all of it. I'll just mention it very briefly here. Mark 7, its first 23 verses served our purpose very well. For you were able to see that sin comes from the heart. The Pharisees were worried about their outward compliance and what went in the mouth, 
Jesus was worried about what comes out of the mouth, knowing that it comes from the heart. All sins start in the heart. There are people that actually think drunkenness is caused by alcohol. Can you believe that? That's like murder is caused by guns. Murder isn't caused by guns. It's caused by a wicked man with a wicked heart who hates someone else who abuses a gun. Drunkenness isn't caused by alcohol. Drunkenness is caused by a man who has a wicked heart who refuses to submit to God's rule that he only drink moderately so he drinks excessively until he's a drunkard. It's his heart that causes drunkenness. And if you read Mark 7, verses 21 through 23, you can see where all the sins of men come from. It comes out of their heart. But I want verse 6. Mark 7, 6. Jesus answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, and this is from Isaiah 29, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now we have all sung this morning. A number of you have said amen. We have had men pray. We have prayed in the back room. We have prayed here. We have sung. We have taken God's name and God's worship in our lips. Where is your heart? Is your heart in the matter? Is your heart pure? Are the sins of your life confessed? Is your heart involved in the worship? Are you committed with your affection and love for the Lord of glory? Or is it just an outward show? Jesus is confronting the Pharisees who had so much of their religion outwardly, but yet they didn't have their hearts toward Him. And it had been prophesied from Isaiah 29 because it was a perpetual problem of the Jews. They would go through the outward motions of tabernacle or temple worship, but they wouldn't have their hearts involved, their hearts clean, their hearts confessed. There were sins in those hearts, and God would not accept their worship. And so we're looking at the nature of New Testament religion right now and realizing that it is a religion of the heart. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and realize my job includes attacking you on Sundays or Wednesdays or whenever I write you emails to attack the thoughts of your heart. That's my job description. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 Verse 3, we'll start. The Apostle Paul is speaking about his ministry toward the Corinthian church. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. We still have a fleshly, bodily existence in this world, the Apostle is saying, but our warfare is not physical. We don't bring swords or guns to fight you. There's another warfare going on on a spiritual level. So it's, And it's described in verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Now, strongholds are typically fortresses built by enemies to protect themselves from military conquest. But the term is being used here for spiritual heart-mind strongholds that ministers are supposed to pull down, and God has given us His Word, like a sermon this morning, to pull down some of those strongholds. Verse 5, casting down imaginations. God is addressing through me your imagination. 
and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. Every thought in you that creeps up and competes with God, God is addressing through me right now and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ and having it a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Paul told the Corinthians, when I get you all converted and corrected, then I will be sitting in ready revenge if you depart from it again. But right now, he's saying, I'm attacking you. Every high thought that exalts itself, your imaginations, and bringing every thought into obedience. And see, it's me with you. I've already had to address this for many more hours than you're going to hear in a few minutes. So we're being confronted by the Word of God right now about our hearts, about our thoughts, about our imaginations. Is your imagination holy? Is your heart holy? Are your thoughts holy? We will give an account for every thought. We are being held accountable right now. I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins to give every man according to his doings. Your heart is going to determine your success and God's mercy in your life. Lord, help us and have mercy. So I showed you the importance of the heart in God's religion, the nature of New Testament religion, and the consequences. Look at Proverbs 14 with me briefly, and let's get into a couple of examples. Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 14. You had it recently in a proverb commentary. Proverbs 14, 14. The backslider in heart. Ah, you mean is that a person that keeps coming to church? It is. You're on the right track. The person keeps coming to church. Is it a person that still volunteers to read a psalm? It is. Is it a person that volunteers to pray? Yes. Does this, might this person bring food for one of our church meal? Yes. But they've backslidden in heart. Where is your heart right now? On a scale of zero to a hundred. With a hundred being the highest it's ever been. Where is your heart right now? With hundred being what the Bible teaches your heart should be. Where is your heart right now? That would be a lower number. Because God's standard is higher than our standard. 14.14, the backslider in heart, hear the words, the backslider in heart shall be filled with his own ways. You choose to compromise the worship of God. You choose to neglect the worship of God. You choose to make the worship of God not a very important thing in your life. God will make you not a very important thing in His universe. The backslider in heart shall be filled with his own ways. You will wonder why religion has become boring. You will wonder why I am so terrible at preaching. Because you will have backslidden heart. I've always been bad. But the reason you think that I'm worse than I was is because you haven't taken care of your heart. If we would take care of our hearts, a neighing ass, my cousin, would be enjoyable to your ears. Balaam heard an ass. It's your heart. 
The backslider in heart shall be filled with his own ways. You want to neglect God? He'll neglect you. The Lord can leave you so miserable and lonely. And I was there as a young man. The loneliest man on earth. I would have sworn it to an oath that I was the loneliest man on earth. Because the Lord left me because I left Him. I was a backslider. I've been a backslider at other times. And the Lord's left me. He's left me high and dry. He's put me out to pasture. I've been like Nebuchadnezzar before. The backslider in heart shall be filled with his own ways. But here's some comfort. And a good man shall be satisfied from himself. That is the opposite side of the coin. A good man that doesn't backslide in heart, but keeps the Lord first, will be blessed. From himself, God will reward him for how he is living. Look at Isaiah 29, since it's not too far away. Isaiah 29, so that we can see the quotation that Jesus Christ pulled into Mark chapter 7. Isaiah 29, very quickly here. Verse 13, Wherefore the Lord saith, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth, and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. They are going through religious motions, but they don't really love me. They're not excited about me. They're going through the motions. That's what that long verse means. Therefore, behold, this is what God's going to do. I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder, for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. Woe unto them that seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord, and their works are in the dark, and they say, Who seeth us? And who knoweth us? Surely your turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter's clay. For shall the work say of him that made it, he made me not? Or shall the thing framed of him that frameth it, he had no understanding? God is the potter and we are the clay. And if you think that you can give him lip service and not give him heart service and get away with it, you are as foolish as a piece of pottery mocking a potter. We can't get away with it. I love to worship a God like that. That won't let us get away with it. You know, if a person is not his child, he is condemned. But if a person is his child, he is chastened. And God's chastening can be severe. And so the choice is, let's worship him with our hearts. Let's be excited about him. Let's give him our hearts. When you give the Lord your heart and you are excited and you love Him and you are devoted to Him, every blessing flows from that. He blesses every part of your life unless He's working on you in some other way. But He fills you with joy and peace and hope. It's a bountiful way to live. Going through the motions is ridiculous. Your flesh doesn't like being here and your spirit doesn't like being here because you're in the flesh. It's lose-lose. When you serve the Lord, it's win-win. I've tried both numerous times because I'm a slow learner and I'm a wicked man. Second Corinthians will come to these places later. I, need, I want to get into our matter. I, let me make just the point here without turning you to a number of verses. Satan is not as ignorant as your parents. Satan is not as ignorant as your spouse. And Satan is certainly not as ignorant as your pastor. 
Do you know what that means? It means that your heart's sins are known to Satan because he's able to read men a whole lot better than we can read each other. And when you play around with heart sins, he knows that you're giving him a place in your life and he is excited and he is a lion that walks about seeking whom he may devour and he will devour you. Now that doesn't mean that you come to church and your hand's been gnawed off. It means that your spirit and your heart and your joy and your love of Christ and your desire for holiness has just been gnawed away and you are so lonely, you are half suicidal. Because you've given the devil a place in your life. The devil's name in Hebrew is Abaddon. Revelation 9.11 The devil's name in Greek is Apollyon. Both names mean exactly the same thing. Destroyer. He told little Eve that she could be like God if she would eat the fruit. It destroyed her. Adam ate the fruit from her hand. It destroyed him. Judas Iscariot thought he could make 30 pieces of silver very easily, and the Lord would deliver himself like he had always delivered himself from the Jews. Judas gave back the money. The men he gave back the money to and said, I have betrayed the innocent blood, would not accept his confession. And then he went out and hung himself, and that didn't even go right, because it dashed his bowels across the field. The devil is a destroyer. And if you give him a place in your life by not taking care of heart sins, you are going to be ripped apart. Lord, help us. God drowned the earth, old and young, male and female, of all nations, of all peoples, in Genesis chapter 6, because the thoughts and imaginations of their heart were only evil continually. And we live in a society like that, and it's not going to be a deluge of water. It's going to be a deluge of fire. Okay, let's get started. Job 31. Job 31. How many of you men and boys have committed adultery this past week? How many of you foolish women have committed adultery this past week? You don't need to raise your hands and embarrass yourselves. There should be a forest of hands right now. If I were to say stand, I would say that everybody above the age of 10 should stand. You might have had an exceptional week in that your memory fails to remind you. Let's just remind ourselves of the danger of sins of the heart. And when I speak like that, I'm speaking about the depravity of man. I am not speaking to justify us ever playing around with sin or thinking that it's an ordinary thing that we all ought to have on a regular basis. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us to keep our hearts with all diligence. How many of you have committed adultery? See, God doesn't care whether you actually went and did it or not. That is Pharisee-type thinking. We want to go after what God looks at. God knows that if you had some vicarious pleasure by thinking about someone else, you committed adultery. God knows that if you thought about it, it was simply the lack of an opportunity for you to have done it. God knows all those things. And God looks at our heart. This is how a holy man talks. 
Job 31 and verse 1. Job said, I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? Job had a big farm, a big ranch. He had many domestic servants. These young babes from 14 to 34 were running around his property and his wife was now 65. I'm sorry for every 65-year-old woman in here. You're beautiful. Job had all these domestic servants, all these little babes. Some of them were exotic because they were bought from other countries. They ran around him all the time. They brought the food to him. They brought clothes to him. They brought him reports. And he he had them all around him. Here's the covenant that he made with his God because Job was God's favorite man on earth. I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? I have made a covenant to God. He knows my heart. I won't even think about any of these maids. I have made a covenant with mine eyes. I will not look upon them except they are the daughter of another man or they are the wife of another man. I will treat them like my own daughter. I have made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think? Notice it's not doing it. Why should I think? Every man in here, I'm addressing you. God will not bless you. You will not walk with God. And when you meet Him, He's going to hold you and me accountable for every thought that we allowed to run wild in our minds about another woman. Of course they're attractive. Of course God chose you to live in a generation where porn and immodestly dressed women are more accessible, more obvious, and more populous than ever before in the history of the world. But God doesn't make mistakes. He's also given you this sermon, this day, and a lot that's gone before today along the lines necessary for you to keep your hearts. Mental adultery is desiring, fantasizing, or imagining sexual pleasure that would be sin. And if you're desiring it, fantasizing about it, or imagining it, it is sin. The Bible condemns the thoughts. And here's where we start with Job. Why then should I think upon a maid? Because I have a covenant with God. I've made a covenant with mine eyes. I will not do it. I will not look. I will not think. Look at Proverbs chapter 6 and see King Solomon warning his son Rehoboam about the matter. Oh, Lord. Lord, we live in a mess. If Isaiah would cry out, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, we must cry out, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean eyes, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean eyes. We live in a horrible generation, but it is no excuse. We have a heart, and we can give the Lord a gift that no other generation has been able to give like we can give. Should that excite? That should excite you. I love to address our young people that way. That if our young people will make it from 13 to 20 and fear the Lord all those days in between, they can give God a gift that hardly any give Him. So men, let's man up. Women, let's man up. You know what I mean. Proverbs 6.25, Lust not after her beauty in thine heart. In thine heart. That's where lust starts. 
You're thinking, I want somebody else. I'd like to try somebody else. It'd be so interesting to have somebody else. Somebody else would certainly be better than what I'm stuck with. And all those kind of wicked thoughts. Lust not after her beauty in thine heart. It's in your heart. Adultery of the heart. Matthew chapter 5. Do I need to turn you there so that you can see it in the red writing? Maybe the black writing isn't powerful enough for you, but I can tell you that the one is as, is as inspired as the other. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 28. Oh, how... If we don't keep our hearts, the Lord is not going to keep our marriages. The Lord is not going to keep our children. The Lord is not going to keep our souls. The backslider and heart shall be filled with his own ways. We are going to destroy ourselves. We will destroy this church. We will destroy our families. We will destroy our children if we don't keep our hearts. You say, but the Lord's merciful. Are you saying to me that you want to presume on God's mercy? Is that what you're telling me right now by even saying those wicked words? When you're using God's mercy in the future, you're presuming on His mercy. He is not going to be merciful. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 28, the Pharisees were so good at quoting the Ten Commandments, but Jesus said to them, in verse 27, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. No sheets involved, no bed involved, no hotel involved, no means of a secret liaison involved. It's all in your heart. And it's adultery. And we just use three Bible verses to tell us it's something we've got to get out of our hearts. This sin is fed by pornography, romance novels, or by any entertainment on television or the big screen that feeds it. God chose you for this generation and you can do it. Adultery is a capital crime. Adultery is a capital crime. You deserve to die. And God considers it to be a capital crime when you commit it in your heart and your mind. Beware. You say, well, I'm not dead yet. I know, but you're, you're miserable. You say, I'm not miserable yet. Then God's being merciful because he's going to tear you apart. Why don't you and I sit down and I'll show you a maturity curve of where you ought to be at your age in all the measures of a man. And we'll see how successful you are if you think that you can play with a capital crime in your heart and not pay for it. Every little vicarious thrill that you have by imagining sin with another person, man or woman, God sees it, and that thrill is off limits. It is sin. If God knows that it's only the opportunity that has kept you from not committing the outward sin, He know, God knows that as well. What should you do? Cut off all inputs or circumstances that tempt you and dedicate yourself to your spouse and to the Lord. Right. Adultery is not so much, and I'm talking to men right now, adultery is not a sin against your wife. It, that's so far down the list that it, it's not measured in the Bible. Adultery for a man is a sin against God. When Mrs. Potiphar got her hands on Joseph, Joseph said, how can I commit such a great sin against 
God. He wasn't thinking about Mr. Potiphar. He was thinking about God. When David committed adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, in Psalm 51, when he confessed his sin, he said, Against thee and thee only have I sinned. Now, when a woman commits adultery, she commits adultery against God and her husband because she is the man's. The man is not the woman's. You can read the Bible from cover to cover, and every verse in the Bible is going to be consistent with what I'm telling you right now. The woman was made for the man. The man wasn't made for the woman. There's no test of jealousy in the Bible for a woman to impose upon her husband, but there are certainly tests of jealousy for men to impose on their wives. And I don't want to spend any more on that at all, except you men, to God we owe clean hearts in this matter. And we, may, we need to make a covenant with our eyes like Job did. And you women, you owe that covenant to God as well with your eyes, but you also owe it to your husband because you were made for him. Turn to Second Samuel chapter 2 and let's go to another sin. I have put these in alphabetical order and let the Lord sort them out for us. I don't have a strategy except to trust the Holy Spirit of the living God to help us. Let's get this in. Second Samuel chapter 2 and verse 26, Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Knowest thou not that it will be bitterness in the latter end? How long shall it be then, ere thou bid the people return from following their brethren? Civil war was breaking out in Israel. And so Abner and Joab are having this discussion, and it's about bitterness. Bitterness. A sin of the heart. Bitterness is not something you can see until it's manifesting itself in symptoms. Bitterness. What is bitterness? Intense animosity. Virulence of feeling. Violently bitter. Spiteful or malignant. Full of acrimony or enmity towards someone else. You don't like them. You're bitter about them. It's like an acid burning in you when you think about them. When you see them, acid burns. Because you're bitter toward them. And the Bible addresses this in many different places. It's caused by unresolved offenses that were not dealt with or charitably passed over. And if you didn't deal with it in the past, then it's too late. Pass over it. It's so easy to pass over offenses if we ever learn how much the Lord has passed over us. I hate bitterness. God hates bitterness. Bitterness will eat up your family, eat up your soul, eat up your marriage, and eat up this church. There can't be any. Get over it. You're not important enough to have bitterness. It doesn't matter what they did to you. Get over it. But I need to protect myself. The minute that you think you need to protect yourself, God is no longer your protector. You will eat yourself up from the inside out, and you don't do anyone any harm. You are a fool for thinking that way. Holding on to bitterness does not hurt the other party. It's personal suicide. We don't care. I don't care if you're bitter at me. I don't even know it, and I don't even think about it, but you can't sleep at night because that bitterness toward me is eating you up. It's ridiculous. It's sin, and all sin is destructive, and it's terrible. And the devil loves bitterness because it leads to murder. It leads to division. It leads to fighting and strife, and he doesn't want a happy church. He doesn't want happy marriages, and he doesn't want happy families. Bitterness. Why would you be bitter? You're not important enough to be bitter. I know, I said it the second time. There'll come a time when I won't know it. 
Right now I know it. It may not be next Sunday, but right now I do. I know I'm repeating myself on a couple of things like that. Look at James chapter 3. James chapter 3. I cannot tell the story again, nor would it be worth the time, but you, most of you know that when I was a, a late teenager, there was bitterness that filled me. I was full of, I was full of acid. And much of it was toward my dear father. Why? Because he was godly. Why? Because he wouldn't let me run rampant in the public school system where I was. Because he put restraints on me. Because he made me dress a certain way and act a certain way to sort of be a Christian. And I fought him. Because I had bitterness. And a couple Baptist ministers laid these verses on me. And I know I don't care about repeating myself here. I want you to love these verses. I love these verses. They sat me down and they said, Do you know that you're acting like the devil? Well, not very many people had told me I was acting like the devil. School counselors never talked to me that way. James 3.14 But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not, and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. And I was confused, and I had every evil work in my teenage life. And I was so miserable, and I was so lonely, because I, I didn't have God with me, I didn't have my family with me, I had no one with me. Because I was bent on rebellion from bitterness in my heart. I don't want to be bitter at anybody. I hate bitterness. You know, now listen, for me to get over bitterness, you've got to hurt me today before the sun sets. So, go ahead and give me your best shot after we get over. Say something nasty and ugly to me. Kick me, knee me. So that I can ignore it. Because, you know, we can't get rid of, we can't show that we've got the mastery of bitterness until somebody hurts us. Now, the reason I'm bringing all this up is, do you know what I hear from people? (laughs) But they hurt me. Of course. Yes. Next. Of course we're going to hurt each other. Of course we're going to offend each other. Yes. All that means is, we have an opportunity to forgive and forget and to live without bitterness. That James 3, 14 through 16 right there. If you have bitter, envying, and strife, where? In your hearts. It may, not, it may not even have to be outwardly. It's just in your heart. You don't like somebody. You can't stand somebody. They irritate you when you see them. There's a feeling of acid inside you. Get over it! Hebrews chapter 12 is close by. Hebrews twelve fifteen. A young man spoke on this years ago. Do you remember? He has red hair. Daniel, oh, I mean Hebrews. Hebrews 12, 15. Hebrews 12, 15. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. That's from last Sunday. Failing of the grace of God. God gives us grace and we fail to use it. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled. You can't keep bitterness small. 
Bitterness will break loose at some point. You're going to be pushed into some corner where your bitterness is going to burst out and then everybody knows you're devilish. It springs up and defiles people. So we want to get rid of it. We want to start at the heart, hit the silver lever, and flush it. And get rid of bitterness. Who are you bitter at? They hurt you. You're holding it against them. It's sort of like a a grudge. It's sort of like hatred. Get over it. Forgive them. Bitterness. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Lord, help us clean our hearts out. Let us go in there and tear the doors down, tear down the bricks that are in there, tear down the walls that we've got up protecting our bitterness against someone. It is the most ridiculous sin. It only hurts you. You know, somebody 40 years ago hurt your feelings and you're bitter at them? Wow, you're really good. It doesn't bother them a bit. Except if they know that you're bitter, they're happy because they've ruined your life. Because you've ruined your life by choosing to be bitter about them. But it doesn't hurt them a bit. And God hates your bitterness. And God's not blessing you because you're bitter. So why don't we just hit the silver lever and flush it. And choose to love that person. And choose to forgive that person. And choose to think about all the good things about that person. Ephesians chapter 4 says in verse 31, Let bitterness... Ephesians 4.31, Let bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with malice. No? It doesn't say that? Oh. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Let's get rid of all of it. Lord, help us. Okay, one more. Ecclesiastes chapter 10. One more and we'll, we'll have a break. If you'll turn quickly, I'll finish quickly. Ecclesiastes 10.20 Curse not the king. No, not in thy thought. And curse not the rich in thy bedchamber, for a bird of the air shall carry the voice, and that which hath wings shall tell the matter. Curse not the king. No, not in thy thought. Let's have a descend. Despising government. 2 Peter chapter 2 and Jude chapter 1 says, despising government. It's rebellion against God. It's in our hearts. We see a picture of our president and we think evil thoughts. It's wrong. If you are going to see a picture of your president and think an evil thought, then I hope and trust that when your wife and children see your picture, they have the same thought. Because if the truth be told, the president treats you better than you've treated them. It's wickedness. You know, on Wednesday night we celebrated the fact that God is blessing the local economy. Our local economy is booming. And we're very thankful for that. And you know, some of the men have talked with me about why is the government blessing our local economy? Because this little tiny good-for-nothing church working in, meeting in such a pitiful little building. Thanks God for our government and praise for our rulers because the Bible says to do that and that in her peace 
we'll have peace. And in her prosperity, we'll have prosperity. And we're reaping it. You say to me, this little tiny church couldn't influence... Really? God told Abraham, if I can find ten righteous souls in Sodom and Gomorrah, though they're all a bunch of Sodomites, I'll spare the cities. Ten righteous souls. They couldn't find ten. Because Job's three daughters that had married boys of Sodom were wicked and wouldn't leave with him. Those six wouldn't come. So it was just Lot, his wife, and the two daughters that were still at home. Ten righteous souls. We have asked God for mercy toward our country. We've asked God to forgive our nation. We defend our rulers. Despise not government. Despise not dominion. Curse not the king. No, not in thy thought. In Exodus chapter 22 and verse 28, it puts it this way about rulers. Exodus 22 and verse 28. Thou shalt not revile the gods, nor curse the ruler of thy people. Thou shalt not revile or curse, calling them names. Don't tell jokes about our president. Don't tell jokes. Don't listen to jokes about our president. Don't look at cartoons about our president. That has nothing to do with free speech. I wish that a Nebuchadnezzar or something would arise to protect our president and every editorial or caricature of our president, he would chop him into pieces and turn his house into a dunghill. You say that would make him a dictator. He ought to be one when it comes to people speaking against him and against our government. Solomon warned not to curse the king, not even in your thoughts. Jude and Peter warned about despising government. God gave us the rulers we have. He personally handpicked and chose them. It had nothing to do with the electoral college or the voting of individuals or the whole country put together. God chose. He doesn't care how somebody gets into power, whether it's through a military coup or whether it's by voting. God chooses our rulers. That man was conceived, and that man was gestated, and that man was born, and that man was preserved, and that man had doors open to him of opportunity, and he went through them and used them, and God opened doors, and God blessed him, and God raised him up until he sits in the highest position of power in this country. It doesn't matter what you think about our Constitution. It doesn't matter what you think about our Congress. By de facto truth... The president of our country deserves our respect, our thanksgiving, and our prayers. Our Congress and our Supreme Court and everyone down, including our governor, deserves that. And so we want to examine our hearts and make sure that our hearts are thankful. Remember when I preached on this a year or two ago, it was like a revelation came to me from 1 Timothy chapter 2. I knew that it said supplications and prayers and intercessions be made for kings and for all that are in authority. But I had conveniently overlooked the fact that we're supposed to be thankful for kings and for all that are in authority. And for the Apostle Paul, that was Nero. That was Herod's. That was the Agrippa's. For us, it's our president. It's our mayor. It's our governor, it's, and it's the rest. Lord, help us to do that. They are, they're handpicked by the Lord of heaven. He, he handpicked them for us. They're perfect for us. And, and, we, and if, we, if we let that sphere of authority get corrupted in our hearts, then we're just an anarchist. 
because we're going to corrupt the next one that doesn't do things just the way we think they should do it. And then our children are going to do that to us. And I've seen it my whole life. Those that like to speak and think against government, how loyal and committed are their children to them. I've never seen an exception. You will reap what you sow. If you backslide in your heart about authority, God handpicked them. They are called the ministers of God to us for good. And he is a minister of God to us for good. Our local economy is booming right now, and I'm thankful, and it is trickle-down blessings from the top. God is taking care of us. And I'm thankful for that. We obey for conscience sake toward God. So let's make sure our consciences are clean. It's an internal apparatus that we have that checks us on whether we're doing what is right or not. Right. Solomon would say, "Keep the king, obey the king and fear the king in light of the oath that we've all made. In Israel, it was the citizens of that nation being under their government in, in our nation, being citizens were under our government. And it's our conscience. It's for conscience sake that we obey. Outward compliance isn't good enough. What we're talking about is in our hearts. Right. And, and I have as big of a problem as anyone, if not a bigger one. But I want to give God a gift. Right. And it can be a whole lot worse than it is. And uh, it will probably get a whole lot worse than it is. And when it gets a whole lot worse than it is, are we still going to guard our hearts and have hearts that are thankful and honor and do not revile or curse? Lord, help us to that end. It's, our religion is a religion of the heart. Adultery, bitterness, and despising government. May every one of you examine your hearts and confess your sins. And clean your heart out thoroughly and hit the silver lever. And let's give God holy, pure hearts that love him. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.